So good morning, everybody. Obviously, again, I say this every time, I'm not Jim. Uh, so that must mean Jim is away. And as my wife will tell you, I'm not one to ask follow-up questions or probe into details. So I have no idea where he's at, but I know he's away. <laughs> Um, so I, he asked me to fill in today, and it's always a, a humble opportunity, and I'm always honored to be able to stand in the pulpit and proclaim the word of God to my fellow brothers and, and sisters in Christ. So a, as we enter in, let's put a, a framework on where we are in, in the church calendar. Uh, today we're celebrating the resurrection of uh, Christ on the fifth Sunday of Easter. The lectionary reading from the gospel according to John brings us back to Jesus in the upper room, having that conversation with the remaining disciples right after Judas the betrayer had gone out from them. So we're going back in time a little bit um, prior to the resurrection. So in order to bring us up to speed on our current reading, I think we need to go back a little bit into chapter 13 to the beginning to, to gain a better context and understanding of where we're going to be discussing in verses 31 and 35. So I'm going to summarize uh, the events of chapter 13 in the Gospel according to John before we enter in. So in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13, John informs us that the time was before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father and when the devil had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. So that kind of gives us some orientation as to the main events that are going on at that time. The first thing we see here is a foot washing. In an act of great humility and love, Jesus rose from the middle of supper. He removed his outer garment and placed a cloth around his waist. Then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, including Judas, and then dried them up with the same cloth that was around his waist. Now in the time of Christ, the task of washing feet was considered so low that it was reserved as a job for not just slaves, non-Jewish slaves, because this was such a, an act of defilement um, that it would be below a master to wash his teachers or his student or disciples' feet. And typically this was done before entering the house, not in the middle of a meal. So let's just think about that. To us, feet may be gross for many of us, and this is a modern society where we have bar soap readily available, running water readily available. Um, this was a time where people wore sandals and were barefoot and were walking through mud and muck and other animal droppings that may have been on the road. Um, this was a kind of a disgusting um, task to do because of the situations and circumstances of the day. Yet God, taking on flesh, humbled himself in an act of great love to show that to the ones he loved, his disciples, but also the one that he already knew was going to betray him. He loved his friends and he loved his enemy. And it's an extreme act of service. This was an interesting take in, in studying deeper into this. I did not realize this at first. R.C. Sproul points out that Christ's washing of the disciples' feet also points to the sacrament of baptism. The sacrament of entry into the new covenant, covenant, excuse me, and a symbol of cleansing that points to the ultimate reality of cleansing that is only accomplished by the blood of Christ on the cross. Sproul points us to the reality of this ultimate cleansing that points forward to the cross to the disciples. 
while our baptism looks back in time to the cross. And the cross is always that ultimate sacrifice of Christ and the only cleansing power for our sins. Picking up a little later in verses 12 through 15. After washing their feet, Jesus then puts on his clothes. He joins them, the disciples, in having a discussion around the table. The Ignatius Study Bible pointed out something that I'd never thought of either. That's the beauty of going through this kind of assignment, of, of preaching the word and going through text. They point out that the same Greek verbs that Jesus uses in John 10 through 17, uh, 17 through 18 when speaking of laying down his life and taking it up again, these are the same verbs that are used when Jesus laid aside his outer garments and then put on again his outer garments, which if you think about it again also points us to the cross of Christ where Christ then willingly laid down his life and then rose again on the third day into a glorious bodily resurrection. So that laying down and taking up again, all of this uh, pointing to the cross, the only place of substitution for our sin. Moving along in verses 18 through 19, Jesus foretold how the scriptures would be fulfilled, that he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a reference to Psalm 41.9. So when that it does take place, you may believe that I am he. In verse 21, we learn that Jesus is troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. If we just read through this and don't put ourselves in the moment, imagine this, right? They're sitting around reclined at a table with Jesus. Jesus has been trying to tell them what he must accomplish. But yet, the disciples are still not understanding exactly what needs to take place for, for Christ's glory and for the forgiveness of our sins. So they're, they're looking around like, no, like us? Like, we've, get, we've sacrificed everything. We've been walking with you. We, we put aside our family. We put aside our careers to follow you. Like, us? One of us is going to betray you, Lord? Certainly not. Just imagine the weight in that room. Um, one example might be boss calls all of us into work and says, today one of you is going to be fired. We're like, what? Like, we thought everything was going great. Like, why? who's getting fired? Why? So this is the moment. They're feeling the weight of one of them in the room who are supposed to be loyal disciples and followers is going to betray Christ. So Peter has a vantage point of John. John is leaning against Christ. Peter kind of motions to him, hey, you want to find out who that might be? Um, so we, we learn through the text that he whispers into Christ's ear and says, you know, who is it, Lord? Who is it? So let us read and pick that up here in verses 26 and 27 in chapter 13. Then after he had taken the morsel, oh, rewind, Jesus answered, this is 26, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what, are you, what you are going to do, do quickly. Then moving down to verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. 
So this was sort of a private conversation. So the other disciples were not exactly sure what was going on. They thought maybe Judas had some kind of task related to the money to take care of. Um, but John was on the inn because of his proximity to Christ. So moving along, after Satan entered Judas and Judas had gone out, Jesus is alone at last with the remaining 11 of the 12 disciples. And now that he's alone, now that his betrayer has gone out, is away from them, he relaxes. He can enter into an intimate conversation about what lay ahead. So picking up on our text today, verses 31 and 32, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him and himself and glorify him at once. There's a lot of glory in that section there. Uh, so I appreciate J.C. Ryle and his commentary who breaks this down for us a little bit. I thought this was much easier to understand. J.C. Ryle states in his commentary regarding Christ's words in verse 31, in quotations, it is as though Jesus said, the time of my crucifixion is at hand. My work on earth is finished. An event is about to take place tomorrow, which however painful to you who love me, is in reality most glorifying to both me and my father. So we may be thinking the Roman cross, a place of glory. No, that's a place of shame. But J.C. Ryle shows how the crucifixion brought glory to both the Father and the Son. Starting with the Father. The crucifixion brought glory to the Father in that it glorified his wisdom, his faithfulness, his holiness, his love. And J.C. Ryle expands on each of those points, and I thought these were so good that I wanted to share them. It showed him wise is the author of a plan that he could be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. It showed him faithful in keeping his promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. It showed him holy in requiring his law's demands be satisfied by our great substitute. It showed him loving in providing such a redeemer for sinful man as Christ Jesus. Now, turning our attention to the sun, how does the sun find glory in the cross? Continuing with J.C. Ryle's exposition, the crucifixion brought glory to the sun in that it glorified his compassion, patience, and power. It showed him most compassionate in dying for us, suffering in our place, and allowing himself to be counted sin and a curse for us by buying our redemption with the price of his own blood. Second, it showed him most patient in willingly submitting to such horrors and unknown agonies that no mind can conceive. When with the word, he could have summoned his angels and removed himself from the situation, been set free. But then, of course, his work wouldn't have been accomplished, and here we are without hope, without a savior, if he didn't maintain until the end. Lastly, it showed him most powerful in bearing the weight of all of the world's transgressions and vanquishing 
Satan. I thought that was beautiful. So keeping our eye on scripture, there are two places uh, that I want to point our attention to that really um, highlight glory to Christ and the Father through the crucifixion. We don't have to turn, but if you want to turn, we're going to be reading a verse from Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In this verse, it connects Christ's death on the cross to the exaltation of the Son and the glory of the Father. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Insert an amen after that. So that, I, I learned that this might have been an early hymn in the church that was recited. And I thought that was beautiful. Picking back up in John's gospel, moving a little forward to chapter 17 where we see the high priestly prayer. Jesus elaborates on the verses in 31 and 32 where he talks about glory to him and glory to the Father. So I'm just going to read the words of Christ because they're powerful. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This wasn't an afterthought. This had been planned out for eternity. Picking back up into our section today for our lectionary reading. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So in this verse, we see Christ address his disciples in loving language that a head of a household would use to address his family. Intimate language. He lets them know that his time with them is running out, and they will not be able to follow him where he must go. Jesus is referring back to John 7.33 when Jesus said to the Jews as the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Quote, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. We can see looking back that the work of Jesus was coming to an end and that his death, burial, resurrection and ascension must take place in order for Christ to accomplish his saving work and return to heaven to take his seat at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us until his glorious return and final judgment. 
But we're reading this through a lens of millennia of biblical study, doctrinal formation, and church history. So this may seem obvious to us that this is where this was all headed. But was it obvious to those in the room as he was having this discussion? I would say not, based on the reaction of Peter that we see just a few verses down in 36 and 37. Peter asks, well, Lord, where are you going? Lord, why can I not follow you now? So you can see it's plain that, that they did not yet fully grasp what must happen. Moving on to verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So to the Jewish ear, to the Jewish disciple, a couple verses would come to mind. They knew their scripture. They knew their Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6 4 through 5 would come to mind. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Or Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quoted both of these in Scripture in Mark 12, 29 through 31, when he was asked which commandment is the most important of all. So what exactly is different about this new commandment? I think that's the heart of the question for uh, us reading the New Testament. Jesus now says in verse 34, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So in chapter 13 alone of John's gospel, we have already seen several examples of how the love of Christ was expressed to his disciples. Jesus demonstrates a love that humbles oneself to the level of a slave to wash the dirty, stinky feet of the ones he loves and also his enemy who was already determined to betray him. Jesus demonstrates a love that is willing to lay down his life for his friends and undeserving sinners at the cross in humble obedience to his Father. Jesus demonstrates a familial love when addressing his disciples as little children, indicating that those in Christ are loved and adopted as children of God. This is where I'm going to challenge us. Verse 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Is the love of Christ demonstrated in us by acts of love and sacrifice toward others our mark of distinction in the church? Are we a witness to the world, or is the world a witness to the church, conforming us to the world's image? Are we making disciples for the kingdom of Christ, or is the culture making disciples for the kingdom of the world? Though we might not agree on fine points of doctrine, do we extend grace and a hand of fellowship to brothers and sisters in Christ in other churches and denominations? Or do we engage in doctrinal, political, cultural disputes causing further division? Do we avoid teaching and preaching areas of scripture that could be perceived as offensive to the culture due to fear of man rather than fear of God? Are we distracted from serving others by love of self, love of money, or some other vice? 
that pulls us into a self-absorbed dopamine chase that only leaves us empty, exhausted, and unable to be of any use. When we are caught in our inward-focused despair, let us look to Christ. Look to Christ who took on flesh to enter the suffering of humanity, driven by both love and justice, to restore order to our sinful fallen state through the only true sacrifice that could ever atone for our sins. Let us look to Christ as a perfect example and fulfillment of love. Let us look to Christ as our only hope in life and death. Let us look to Christ because in 1 John 3.16 we read, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Almost done. But i got to leave us with a picture. Let, let us be lifted up and encouraged by what we read in Scripture in Acts 2 verses 42 through 47. I'm just going to read the whole section, and this is where we'll close. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think there lies the remedy for everything that we're facing in culture, all the pressure to conform to the ways of the world. If the world saw a love like that demonstrated amongst God's people, would that not be the most attractive church model that you can envision? And it's biblical. So let us close in prayer.